Let, let me speak to that for a second, because this is an easy argument to make, but then also an easy one to um, assail if it's not done properly. Mm. Because the underlying premise here is that the moment the guns are gone, no matter who's in power is going to go murder people. And that's just, it's a false dichotomy when people are like, well, obviously our government is not the murdery type. We're not too worried about that right now. Obviously we don't like what they're doing, but I'm not too concerned about this. If that's the argument you're making is that the moment the guns are gone, the people die. It's an easy one to strike down, but I want to put a point in here. One of the historical points you didn't, Please. uh, touch on that little rundown, which was very good. They're all very accurate. But if you uh, add this little bit in there, it's it makes more sense to what we're seeing today, is that in Germany in 1920, before the um, Nazi party became a thing, before Hitler went to power, um, in 1920, they made a gun registry, which just registered everybody who had a firearm who they were, you know, it was a registry. It had everybody who owned it, just it's for safety, right? We want to just make sure we know who all the people with the guns are and what guns they have. Okay, people agreed to that. Now, that government didn't do anything with that registry. They weren't murdery, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but in 1936, the Nazi party came to power and they had this registry just sitting there waiting for them. And they use that registry to go knock, knock, knock on the door to all, all the Jews, all the blacks, mm. all of the political dissidents. And they disarmed them because they knew exactly who they were and what they had. And they went there with their Gestapo and they took all their guns away. And this is the thing is it doesn't have to be the party in power or the people in power of the time of the writing of whatever type of controls there are in place. It just makes it easier in the future for any malicious, malevolent overlords to come through and take advantage of it in the future. It just makes it easier in the future for any malicious, malevolent overlords to come through and take advantage of it in the future. Glorious 5.8ers. Welcome back to another episode of the 5-8 Take, a show where we discuss passions, visions, and belief systems that challenge our way of thinking. Today, we have our great Canadian friend from the Social Disorder Podcast, Mr. Drew Weatherhead. Drew is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt from Alberta, Canada, a location which he ran a great Jiu-Jitsu academy before Dictator Trudeau decided small businesses wasn't cool anymore something that we break down further into the episode. Drew has a bunch of jiu-jitsu instructionals on BJJ Fanatics, Jiu-Jitsu X, that I recommend you purchase if you're looking to develop your game. He also runs a very popular Instagram page, Because Jiu-Jitsu, which has nearly 200,000 followers to date and is one of the most popular jiu-jitsu Instagram pages. In this episode, we begin with an open dialogue regarding our thoughts and who the greatest no-gi grappler of all time is, followed by the tyrannical state which we call our northern cousins in Canada. We discuss Canadian lockdowns, Canadian truckers, Justin Trudeau's past, as well as new gun control laws that has just been passed. This is an awesome episode and I thank Drew once again for coming on and I do recommend you all check out Social Disorder Podcast. Without further ado, let's get into this episode. Mm -hmm. 
I love it. <laughs> um, before we get to that, uh, uh, the Peter McCullough interview and um, the podcast, as well as um, the gun laws in in Canada, um, mm-hmm. I want to get your thoughts on who you think is going to win in August seventh between Felipe Pena and Gordon Ryan. Oh God, Felipe's been dodging this for a good reason, for a very long time too. It, the last it is time true. he fought Gordon, he was still like the Charmander version of Gordon, maybe Charmeleon, but <laughs> he's coming into Charizard, and I don't think he's ready. <laughs> to be fair, Felipe is the only one that's he's beaten him twice, and he's the only one to submit him. Yes, and but to continue to be fair, when he submitted him, it was a 45-minute-long sub-only match that Gordon came in sick to, and he was like 185 pounds. We're talking about like a 250-pound Gordon coming in. He's a Gordon and a half, at least. So you, you don't believe there's there's any chance whatsoever? No, unlimited? I, I think it, this is early, unlimited. early in his career. Yep. And then the second time he beat him was on a last-second back take which was good. It was a good technique because Gordon sort of bailed for the heel hook last second to try to beat him in the ADCC match. And he managed to sort of uh, sort of gumby his knee so that he could turn around behind Gordon and start crawling up his back and got the points with like seconds left. So it was a good win, but it was clutch. Like he, he can't rely on that this time. That's that's very true. And uh, if, you, if you see any way... Or how do you see it? it, it is, or you just don't see any way for Felipe to get get it done? Oh, for Felipe to win? Man, it, this is the problem, I think, is the last time I saw Felipe in a high-stakes no-gi match was against Andre Galvao in the super fight for two ADCCs ago. Yeah. And he literally got ragdolled like a little boy. Like he got slapped in the face over and over, got thrown through a table twice, and his cardio looked shit. So if he comes in against Gordon, like Gordon's cardio is a 10-hour match long cardio. He's not going to get tired. I was going to say like if he can wear Gordon out, but I don't know if that's even physically possible right now. Yeah, now, was- now here, here's, here, no, caveat. If yes. he can sneak some sort of like super spicy burrito into Gordon's lunch, maybe the day before, it might actually kill him or cripple him to the point that he could beat him. It's amazing that one of the one of the greatest no-gi grapplers in history, what you need to do is just hit him with some spicy food. <laughs> That's I mean, how you take him out. <laughs> the boy's got an owie tummy. What are you going to do? <laughs> oh, I love it. I, I saw that he posted some of the stats. Um, I think it was just yesterday. And mm-hmm. 101 mm-hmm. matches – yeah. That's ridiculous. 90, 90, 97, 4, and 3, 85 submissions, 88% sub rate for Gordon. That's out of this world. Yeah. Do you, do you think he's the greatest no-gi grappler? Uh, at this point, the, statistically speaking, yes, although he's new enough to the scene that I don't think he's got the legacy built yet he's building it he's building the legacy yeah. his biggest achievement so far was double gold at adcc once which is huge but um Hodge gracie did that what four times 
Yeah. So he, he's on the route for sure. And here's the thing is Hodger didn't have the super fight scene to build a reputation or a resume around. Very it was all around these major tournaments like ADCC and IBJJF Worlds, uh, which were uh, sparse. You know, there are two years for ADCC in between and then like once per year for the majors in IBJJF. Whereas Gordon, he can take a super fight every weekend if he can find a competitor. And he was very, very active, especially at the beginning of his black belt career. That, it, again, statistically speaking, yeah, he's just fully filled up his resume at this time with with kills. But um, that being said, Gordon speaks very highly of Hodger Gracie and usually sort of tips his hat to him being the GOAT uh, overall. And I think part of that is they have cross-trained because he's, he's with Henzo. You know, yeah. uh, Hodger, whenever he comes to the U.S., trains with Henzo because he's his uncle. You know, and they, they had a... Um, a really tight relationship while Hodger was the GOAT. You know, he was cross-training a lot for Worlds with Henzo. Mm. And so I'm sure in those rooms, I've watched enough of Hodger rolling and he doesn't like flow roll. (laughs) (laughs) He fucking murders whoever he's sparring with and there's no in-between. He's got two speeds. It's either on or off. And when he's on, everybody just gets bulldozed. So I'm sure that there have been some rounds where Gordon's like, what the fuck? I'd 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 love um yeah I'd I'd love to see I know the the match would would never happen but yeah no it wouldn't H- no, Hodge is just is, is yeah yeah is is and just it, an it's a invasion. it's a generational thing too like Hodge has got to be fifteen years older than him yeah true very true Marcelo's up there as well I'd say uh, Garcia just as a for me as just a um as a personal um no gay competitor I've always loved watching him. Over the years. Yeah. Yeah. He he was kind of the Gary Tonin of his time. He was super exciting, mm. highly explosive, never a boring match, um, very high win rates. He wasn't like the same kind of undefeated as as Hodger or Gordon during the their peaks. He took losses to Shanji a few times. He took losses to Hodger a few times. He took losses to Jacare. But people remember him for being just an absolute savage sub sub hunter. You know, he mm. he sort of uh, revolutionized the guillotine as well as the rear naked choke, the arm drag, all of these things that are considered like regular ass moves now, X guard, that was all him. Like he really popularized that stuff. Mm-hmm. And what's what's the jujitsu scene over there? Um, and what's what's been like in Canada, uh, outside of America? So what's the... What's been the developments there since the you know the last two years that we've had? I've know you had some issues. If you if you want to speak to your academy or things that uh, developed over, has things calmed down a bit in Canada? Oh, I thought you were talking about technical developments. I'm like, well, um, we've got this cool move where schools get shut down. <laughs> been really good at that for the last couple of years. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, uh, to do with the government and uh, each state yeah, 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 and yeah. business in in general uh, with uh, the jiu-jitsu business gyms. in general. It's uh, it's been better, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, it all depends on what which province you're in. Our country in Canada is broken up into provinces and territories, mm. and there are some that are worse than others. I was technically, oh, excuse me, I was technically in one of the. I would say Alberta probably has the most fuck you energy of any of the provinces, Hmm. but it's still kind of like a quarter of the way in after like six months or so our, our premier just decided to wilt 
I'm pretty sure he got blackmailed at a certain point. Like legitimately, I think like there was a point when all the premiers got called to Ottawa, which is our nation's capital, and to have like a behind closed doors meeting with the prime minister, Justin Trudeau. Mm. And he came back from that and all of a sudden he was right on board with all of the medical whatnots. Like he didn't have any more fuck you energy left. And I don't know if that was money in hand, if that was blackmail or a mix between the two. I don't know. But uh, long story short, he fucked us over for another year and a half. Um, it took me about 16 months to crush my small business where I couldn't survive anymore. In fact, I should have gone under like 10 months in, but sort of magic hat uh, quite a bit mm. of, uh, I don't know if cheating is the word, but I kind of cheated because I have a large social presence and I started uh, over marketing myself online since I wasn't allowed to make money in person anymore. Mm. Um, and in a strange way, it, it benefited me in the long run. It's one of those silver lining things where I, I managed to learn a new skill under duress, you know, mm. like, um, when you're stuck in the middle of an ocean and you have to learn how to swim, you, you have pretty good incentive to fucking figure it out. And yeah. so I kind of had to do that in real time. And, I mean, through all sorts of different projects, through jujitsu instructionals, both for um, like fanatics as well as jujitsu X, as well as my own page, as well as a member page, as well as rash guards and t-shirts and like the whole thing, right? Yeah. Every possible way I could get some sort of money to magic hat somewhere between five to $10,000 out of thin air every month to try to keep my, my place afloat on top of feed the family and the whole thing. Like it's, it yeah. wasn't easy. I I had the thing built to sustain, to sustain itself, but then to sustain it when it wasn't allowed to sustain itself was the real trick. And I don't know how some people did it, to be honest. I think they went into horrendous debt. Um, there was a bunch of business stipends and loans and grants that were being given out by the government that I stayed as, about as far away as I could for the majority of the shutdowns for or lockdowns mm. because there was always the concern and rumors that they would be clawed back in the future. And I'm like, I don't need to go into like a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt yeah. on top of the debt that I already had on top of, you know, this and that and the others. It'll sink me anyways. And then I'll be deeper in debt, you know? Mm. So it was kind of like my own version of sink or swim at that point. And I, I mean, again, the, the silver lining is I figured out how to swim for long enough to even though the business ended up going under anyways, um, I learned a skill set that has kept us going since then. Because like, here's the thing: if you've got a family, you don't get to quit. You don't get no. to be like, well, better luck next time, because that's not good enough. And I've got a, you know, I'm a single income supporter for our family of six, so it's like, wow, you know, pull up your socks, figure it out. Mm. Um, so once we shut down the gym, we had to. Well, we didn't have to, but we decided to sell the house as well. And we took what we could out of the house, uh, made some money there, which was like all the money we had left in the world. Everything, our whole savings and everything was long dry. Mm. And put that into a trailer and a truck to basically live on the road. We interrupt this program to bring you our sponsors, our brothers. Uh, when everything looked dark for this podcast and the walls were closing in because of these ridiculous, ridiculous laws and censorship that was occurring, loanoptions.ai decided, you know what, we want to back you guys. And they did. And we are still continuing with them. 
and we do appreciate them a lot. So if you're trying to get out of a rut and you need a loan, whatever it is, uh, invest in yourself. That's that's my opinion. However, go to loanoptions.ai. That's loanoptions.ai. What type of loan would you like? Maybe you want a car loan, business loan, caravan loan, mate. Maybe equipment loan. You want a personal loan, motorcycle loan. Don't get that. Don't get a motorcycle loan. You, you know, you know, you, I feel like one of those grandmothers. You will fall off that motorbike and you will hurt yourself. <laughs> but yeah, pick whatever loan you want. Uh, what the purpose is, business use, personal use, and you can pick your term. And then they'll match you with the best lenders. The difference is that they will, won't just palm you off. They'll s- 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 sit with you all the way through your loan to make sure you get it. That's loanoptions.ai. Go to loanoptions.ai slash 5A. F-I-V-E, the number eight. Australia's first artificial intelligence loan marketplace. They support freedom, so do we support them. Now let's get back to it. Um, in the, the mobile sense, right? So everybody knows the term, uh, was it digital nomad, right? We sort yeah. of did that. We became digital nomads where I could take my laptop and go all over the world. And as long as I had a, an internet connection, I was connected to my business. So, mm. uh, Thankfully, that was an option in the year 2020, 2021. And uh, we've been playing that card ever since. And that's a testament to your character. That's a, that's a lot to go through, especially with a family of six. So definitely hats off uh, to your tenacity there. Um, with the conservative um, leaders in Canada, it seems like they've, they've just gone quiet or for a period of time there uh, anyways, even even now with, with the new uh, gun votes, it seems like they've taken a back seat. Is that is that the case on the ground there? Um, well, I don't know how closely you follow Canadian politics. I wouldn't expect many people who aren't Canadian to follow it closely enough to know the nuance, mm. but this is the biggest problem internally in Canada when it comes to the right-left dichotomy. You've got the conservatives, which are your uh, right-leaning party. You've got the liberals, which are the left-leaning party. The liberals are in power right now, and they got voted in. By the way, there is no term limit in Canada. I know a bunch of American listeners, are, are they, their mind blows up when they hear that, but a prime minister can be like perpetually voted back in for the rest of his life. There's no like two terms and you're done. So Justin Trudeau, um, in his infinite wisdom, went to uh, call an election early at uh, the end of 2021, I think November was the vote, to try to get in for his third term. And I thought there was no possible way after all the things that, that we went through that somebody would, anybody would vote for this guy, but he managed to somehow pull out what is a minority government. Um, so it's not what he wanted. He wanted to win a majority. He already had a minority before that, which makes it very difficult to pass laws or pass bills into law here because mm. you're... Um, your opposition party has a lot of pull. It's it's only slightly less than your party, right? Mm. Um, so I'll get back to that in a second. But to answer your question, the difference between the left and right up here is the the left are very unified. They're extremely homogenous and they follow the party line to the T. Like it doesn't matter. It's very, very rare to see anybody break rank, um, you know, 
even hear rumors of it, let alone in public. It never happens. On the other hand, the conservatives are very fractured and there's a lot of infighting and it makes it very easy to lose important ground when somebody's trying to further their career. You know what I mean? There's a bunch of careerists in the uh, conservative party that are trying to make their name in history over the, you know, the better judgment of their peers. So it makes it a lot harder to have like a, uh, a left versus right battle because you have a unified team versus a team that's fighting itself. So in that way, it becomes very frustrating when your political, um, I don't even, I don't even call it ideology, but it's like, if you, if you like freedom, <laughs> liberals aren't doing a lot for that right now. And it, it makes it very difficult as a small business owner, as an unvaccinated person, anybody that has any sort of skin in the pandemic game it has just been skinned over and over and over. So that, I mean, the conservatives are vocal about what they believe, but they don't really have the unification to make anything happen for it. It's very similar. Australia or Australia has a very similar landscape in the sense that we also have our prime ministers that can sit in office as long as they want. Uh, and however, our, our supposedly right-wing party are called the liberals it really doesn't it it really it, it's a it's a it's a mind fuck really one's <laughs> liberals and one's labor but the liberals is supposed to be right wing and then we we get fed a lot of um american politics and liberals are left wing and it's it's yeah it's a it's a bit of a mess around the shop and it's a, however it's the same over here our labor which is your liberals uh which mm. is the the sort of left wing government they also got a minority um, minority win, uh, which was around seventy four percent. However, it, in in our situation in Australia, it was our our government, our federal was the Liberals, which to us is the right wing, but our state yeah. were all Labor. So the state was the ones that could control what happened wow. on the ground, and now. That's this, for the people, eh? Yeah, and then now they've become also the federal, uh, and there's only one state now that's uh, liberals. And oh boy, we're yeah, we're in uh, some tricky, tricky waters at the minute. Is that the same over there? Is it each right, state so has I their own? Yeah, I said I was going to come back to the minority government, and it's important because this is, as far as I'm aware, the first time in Canadian history this has ever happened where. Uh, JT, our, our fearless leader, um, he <laughs> pulled a sneaky that I didn't even know was possible. But a, apparently, according to parliamentary rule, this is, this is doable. It's just it's never been done before. Where the leader of a minority government, who is you know technically the prime minister, he's uh, a regular term is four years, similar to the U.S. But when you have a minority government, they it's kind of presumed that you're going to call an early election sometime between like 12 to 18 months because uh, having a minority government is basically saying that the people didn't know when they went to the vote. So you need to come to the voting box sooner to get a concise decision. Now, um, if you have a majority government, you get your full term as expected. With Justin having a minority this time and coming from a minority before that, I mean, he really has a lot of, uh, in his mind, forward-thinking 
uh, bills that he wants passed, read that tyrannical, that he couldn't with a minority government. And he went behind closed doors and struck a deal with the head of the NDP party, which is a third party, which is essentially a socialist party that really doesn't have a whole lot ideologically um, similar with the liberal party. I mean, they've got some, right? They're, they're for like any sort of social system as far as uh, medical and whatever, you know. But really, like if you're voting NDP, if you're voting the Socialist Party, you're not you're doing that because you're not voting for the Liberal. They're not the same. But they made this backroom party uh, deal that stated that Jagmeet Singh, who is the leader of the NDP, would agree with the power of his party to vote for anything that the liberals vote for or want voted for for the remainder of a full majority term, which basically created wow. a pseudo-majority government. So we've got this thing where I, I honestly feel bad for all the people that voted for NDP because they ended up voting for liberal. They've wow. made this like Frankenstein party that is liberal and NDP, which gives them majority in the House for anything they want to push through. That's out of this world. Yeah, it's, it's terrible because now this government that was supposed to be like, well, the people weren't totally sure. We've got a minority. They're like, yeah, but we're going to add this bunch over here that didn't vote for us. But now we're, we've got the votes that we need to do whatever we want. And now they're like this weird conglomeration. Jagmeet and uh, JT are going to have full rule basically until the end of 2025. When, when did um, Trudeau get into power? Was it... Has he been there for a while? Hell froze over, I think. <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, he is a progeny of a previous prime minister that we had in the seventies, Pierre Trudeau, and uh, he he's actually the progeny of, of Castro. But that's totally. Different I was story. about. I was about uh, to say. Are, are you sure? Is he is he related to Castro? Books, tell me. Tell here. us the truth here, Drew. In the DNA, it's Castro. No, but uh, <laughs> he's. I only say that to say that he comes from, it's a dynasty, right? The last name is a dynasty, same way that the Bushes had a dynasty and the Clintons have a dynasty and the whole yeah. thing, right? This, isn't that weird how that happens? I mm. wonder, probably just nothing, right? Don't don't pay too close attention. Mm. But anyways, he, he was uh, the kid of a former prime minister who was a drama teacher. And that's become a joke. Like when you say that, you almost think it's like, you're making fun of him, but it's true. He literally just taught drama on in Vancouver for most of his unpolitical career. And then he went into politics. And it's funny because he's not really a good actor, but he is an actor. And you can see like the, the theater behind him when he's making statements. Like he's yeah. trying to portray somebody. It's not a person. Like I'm not watching a person talk to a person. You know, it's, it's, he's not a good orator. I'll give him this. For a bilingual person, he's uh, primarily French-speaking. He has very good English. Mm. He's just not a good speaker. So he hums and ahs and, and drops a lot of words, and he's he can get flustered easily, and he, he goes off topic, and he deflects constantly. Um, but it's it's frustrating that this guy, who really has no business in politics besides the sake of his last name, is it feels like it honestly feels like a puppet like somebody has got this puppet there who knows how to act well enough that has a last name that passes the sniff test and like we can't get this fucker out mm. and someone some would say that 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 puppeteer might be the 
World Economic Forum. But yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a whole nother discussion. When people see him do things like say, you know, he appreciates um, the CCP's China? control of China, yeah. when he says things like that, when people see him, you know, we're supposed to be in this whole um, emotional leftist state when they see him doing blackface and, you know, people are getting cancelled from for that, um, for their past, when, say, when he's, he's doing he's these things. He's gone on record saying that he's done it so many times he can't remember how many times he's done it. When somebody asked him how many times he has done blackface, he says he can't remember. Because it's that many times. He's, he's been, I mean, there's pictures from like three different parties that I've seen. And is it a mass psychosis that Canadians just don't see this? Going going back to to um, uh, an initial discussion of of the of a doctor's phrase, um, mm-hmm. do you, is it mass psychosis? Do Canadians just not see this, or or is it yes. is it is it what? Just yes, you, you, you nailed it on the head right there. This is mass formation psychosis, and it's nothing new. Canada's been under this for a while because, it's, again, it's the beginning of his third term. This isn't anything new. Mm. Um, it's been amplified to extraordinary degrees during the pandemic when propaganda around the world did like a cartwheel backflip and has never looked better. Um, he's there's a couple things to to have to understand uh, as far as the inner workings of Canada are concerned. Firstly, if you own the east of Canada, that is Ontario, Quebec, they're almost the majority of Canada right there. Just population-wise, they get the most seats. If you can get Quebec and Ontario, it really doesn't matter if you don't get the rest of the provinces. To the degree that the during the last election, last year, um, I believe every single seat in Alberta went to the conservatives except for one that went to NDP. Nobody voted liberal, but he got in anyways, because it doesn't matter. Like literally the whole province didn't vote for him. Didn't matter. Uh, which is again, it's, he's a, he's a Quebecois, which means he's comes from the, the French Quebec side of Canada. Mm. So he's got a lot of uh, sway there as well as he lives and does most of his work in Ontario. So he's very well known in those two very important provinces and he pushes for that. So the mass psychosis started originally between those two really important provinces, which have kept him in power. Mm. Um, but then on top of that, the the second thing is that, where was I going with this? Oh, right. During the pandemic. Yeah. Um, he bailed out the CBC and CTV, which are the two largest uh, state-run media sources. They're, they're Canadian news, right? So look at it as kind of Fox and, and CNN. Like gotcha. these are the big ones. Yeah. And he bailed them out to, I, th- I think, the tune of nearly a billion dollars to keep them in business during the pandemic, which essentially it captured them completely. They're completely beholden to him. And it's very obvious. Like they he, they will never say a bad word against him and absolutely rail anybody who runs against him. I was watching uh, an interview here recently of a upcoming conservative who I'm, I'm actually really excited for. He's actually a, seems like a person of the people and this host on CBC or CTV or something, they, 
it was the most hostile host I've ever watched. They were really trying to skewer this guy and he did really well. But if this was Justin Trudeau that this guy was talking to, he would never, he'd just be nothing but softballs. That's mm -hmm. what I mean. Like it's a captured media. They'll say anything that he wants. So if you had mass psychosis before, now you've got like a, your, your IV is going right into the bloodstream of Canada. Everybody who just goes home after a hard day's work and cracks a beer open and watches the tube to finish off the day, they click on this, this news station. And all of those guys are just being trough-fed every bit of propaganda from that party. And it's just, it's just adding really to, to what's already um, been manipulated in their heads. And this, this gun control situation... Yeah. Has Canada ever have, like had major mass shootings? Because for for Australia, we had one major mass shooting in nineteen. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So that was in the nineties, and John Howard at the time, who was the leader, decided, you know, we're going to have this uh, gun ban. However, now people own uh, two to three times more guns than they even did back then. So it didn't really. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it didn't really do much. Um, however, now just this is interesting because I, I did some research on the Australian uh, gun. I, I don't know what you would call it. There were two buybacks, right? Yes. After this whole Port Arthur massacre happened, that they claim to have taken back and destroyed at least one third of the firearms in Australia at the time. Yeah. And since then, to get a firearm now, you have to, part of getting licensed for it means you have to show a reasonable reason to own one. And one thing right off the bat that makes it not reasonable is self-defense. Yes. I find that very interesting. <laughs> they, they're saying you can have a gun as long as you don't expect to defend yourself with it. Yes. That's insane. It, it, you, can go, you can go hunting. You just can't defend yourself. Right. It's, so anybody who wants to go hunting people, which is what <laughs> all of the military guns were meant for, uh, you're not allowed to do that, right? Just the military. They're allowed to have it, but nobody else. That seems like you got a bit of a lopsided situation. Definitely. But don't worry, they'll always take care of you. It, it just, it seems like every time that happens, something, you know, something, someone shared a great post with me, actually. So Turkey, I'll, I'll uh, read some of it out for you. Turkey established gun control in 1911. Soon after, 1.5 million Armenians were unable to de defend themselves. They were exterminated. Soviet Union established gun control in 1929. Soon after, 20 million dissidents unable to defend themselves were also exterminated. This happened in China, 1935, Cambodia, 1956, Guatemala, 1964, where 100,000 Mayan Indians unable to defend themselves were also exterminated. So it seems like every time this happens, something well, occurs where a large amount of the population ends up dying or, or affected in some horrific way. Yeah, let, let me speak to that for a second because this is an easy argument to make, but then also an easy one to um, assail if it's not done properly. Mm. Because the underlying premise here is that the moment the guns are gone, no matter who's in power is going to go murder people. And that's just, it's a false dichotomy when people are like, well, obviously our government is not the murdery type. We're not too worried about that right now. Obviously we don't like what they're doing, but I'm not too concerned about this. If that's the argument you're making is that the moment the guns are gone, the people die, it's an easy one to strike down. But I want to 
put a point in here. One of the historical points you didn't uh, touch on that little rundown, which was very good. They're all very accurate. But if you uh, add this little bit in there, it's it makes more sense to what we're seeing today is that in Germany in 1920, before the um, Nazi party became a thing, before Hitler went to power, um, in 1920, they made a gun registry, which just registered everybody who had a firearm, who they were. You know, it was a registry. It had everybody who owned it. Just It's for safety, right? We want to just make sure we know who all the people with the guns are and what guns they have. Okay, people agreed to that. Now, that government didn't do anything with that registry. They weren't murdery, right? Uh, but in 1936, the Nazi power, uh, party came to power and they had this registry just sitting there waiting for them. And they use that registry to go knock, knock, knock on the door to all, all the Jews, all the blacks, mm. all of the political dissidents, and they disarmed them because they knew exactly who they were and what they had. And they went there with their Gestapo and they took all their guns away. And this is the thing is it doesn't have to be the party in power or the people in power of the time of the writing of whatever type of controls there are in place. It just makes it easier in the future for any malicious, malevolent uh, overlords to come through and take advantage of it in the future. Fantastic point. Very, very true. And like here's here's the thing. Um, recently, before the news about handguns, which we can get to in Canada here in a little bit, yeah. uh, there was something that was less covered internationally that happened in Canada about a week ago, where they reinstituted something called the Long Gun Registry. Now, this was something that was in essence abolished in 2012. So it's been like a decade since we've had to register any long rifles, your hunting rifles, your shotguns, anything that isn't considered a handgun or an assault weapon, basically. Uh, these, these are unrestricted weapons, right? Anybody with a firearms license can go and get these things. But for the last 10 years, we haven't had to register them. It, we had a registry from the late 90s to 2012 that was just so cumbersome and non-cost effective that they're like, why do we need to know all these farmers that have you know, shotguns and, and rifles. Why do we care? You know, it's so expensive to do this. So they finally struck it down in 2012. They just brought it back on a whim. Our our safety minister decided to bring it back on a whim, it seems. He, he gave everybody a week, which uh, as of May 18th, they uh, they re basically reinstituted this, but in a weird way. They're not calling it a registry. They're calling it a database. And it's mm. not at the governmental level. It's at the vendor level. So now they're using these like middleman proxies to get all of this information from people who want to buy a long gun. And uh, they say, oh, he was very careful to say, oh, it's not going to the government. But what he didn't say is that they are supposed to keep these this information for 20 years so at any point during those 20 years, I'm sure they could make up any good reason they wanted to or bad reason. Just be like, well, we need those, that info now, you know, safety, right? We, that's all I have to say, because safety. And they can just have this stuff. And even if um, they don't make some reason like that, if the vendor goes out of business within those 20 years, it immediately gets sent to the government. So it's like everything funnels down to them. And there's kind of like a smoke screen that they're, this is the long gun registry right? It's just, it's a different version of it. So they've got our long gun since May 18th. Every single one that's being sold is going to be on file, who it is, what they have, all the ammo as well. And now recently, I think yesterday it was that Trudeau is basically ramming through something that is a freeze on handgun sales. Yes. So basically once this thing goes through, anybody who is already legally allowed to own a handgun, which is considered a restricted weapon, it's a higher level of 
uh, ownership. You have to go through more courses. You have to have a background check through the RCMP and everything else. It's they're extremely law-abiding citizens in Canada are the ones that have handguns and the ones that don't go through that process. <laughs> none of this stuff is going to stop anyways because they're buying it on the street. You know what I mean? Um, oh, so no there's, long, there's no already a stringent sales. there's already a stringent process in place to get the handguns. Extremely. Right. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't handguns on the street. They usually come up through the states through black markets and they get smuggled and all that. I mean, criminal elements are criminal elements. Now, the funny thing about criminals is they don't really try to do everything above board on the the law. You know, they're not really trying to make sure everybody that they're they're buying from and selling to are are respectable. It's it's a weird thing that the black market doesn't give a fuck about. (laughs) But the, uh, any sales, legal sales to law-abiding citizens, which is the only way for normal people, which is, read that, most people in Canada to own a handgun from now on, they're not allowed. Once this goes through, nobody, nobody anywhere outside of the government and the military will be able to buy a handgun. Now, I have a lot of questions about that. Firstly, for handgun enthusiasts, sorry, no more. What you got's what you got. Um, for anybody at this point who wants to get a restricted, like, wow, they're freezing these. I got to get in soon enough. You're not, you, there's not enough time to go through the process and they know that. So only people who already have the license can even try to go like panic buy as many as they want until nobody can sell them anymore. Now, one of the questions I had is if you're a vendor, if you're Cabela's or something that has like a thousand handguns that you brought in to sell to people, what happens when this this law comes in place because nobody owns them. They just send them back to the manufacturer. Like it's a real stab into the gun um, industry. You know, that, that could be half of their firearms that they usually sell and they're expensive usually. And so now all of that business is gone. They don't care. And, and they, they make it sound like they're doing this for safety. And where have we heard this lately? There's this uh, thing that the governments, at least in Canada and around the world seem to be uh, really, they're, uh, they're overestimating or, assuming that you're going to be okay with them taking care of you because you can't take care of you. We're going to take care of you for you. Um, You look at this during, in a pandemic sense, it started with we're safety, flatten the curve. We need everybody to go home to take care of themselves so that you don't get sick. We're going to make sure that you're safe. And then once that didn't work, it came to, okay, well, we need to make sure that we keep everyone safe from you you're the problem. We're not, we don't care if you don't care that you get sick, you're going to get grandma sick and you're going to get all these other people that are trying to stay safe sick. So now we're protecting everybody from you. And then after the, the vaccine came out is we're protecting everyone from the unvaccinated. And now that's kind of where we're stuck. We're in this, this endless cycle where they don't trust unvaccinated people, even though the science is completely flip flop compared to last year, they don't care. They just voted Yesterday, yesterday was a big day in Canada, man. They just voted again yesterday that um, mm-hmm. right along party lines that the Liberals and NDPs voted uh, to keep the federal mandates and restrictions on unvaccinated people not being allowed to travel in place. Is that still going on? So unvaccinated people still can't travel in Canada? That's correct. Only country in the world. Well, like it's, it's crazy. I was outside joke. of Canada for six months recently and it's a total, it's like you're living on a different planet. The, the pandemic is not what it is in Canada anywhere else, anywhere else. If I were anywhere else in the world, I could fly anywhere else in the world. But since I'm in Canada right now, I can't go anywhere. How was that voted in? Well, the, the mandates and the restrictions are the, 
the liberals are the ones that make that decision. Sorry, not and voted so, in. How was it upheld, I should say? Okay, so the safety minister, this weaselly little fuck, um, every single month, I think every three weeks, he has to re-sign the declaration that prohibits unvaccinated people from getting on trains, planes, and ferries, which are considered governmental travel. He has mm. oversight over that. And every three weeks, he says he consults his experts. Now, interestingly, nobody knows who these experts are, and he doesn't have to say, but he's going to have a behind-closed-doors meeting with these experts. And I'll, I'll give you a little hint. Uh, spoiler, it's nobody. He just re-signs it every single time and says, yeah, I talked to the experts, don't like the numbers. You know, he doesn't have to prove anything. I would love for there to be some sort of inquiry after this, but I, I don't have faith that it'll ever happen. And so, I mean, it's, it's again, just all on party lines. Justin has made a, uh, a hobby horse out of abusing unvaccinated people for the last year, at least, you know, um, mm -hmm. there's lots to be said about why that might be, but the fact is that he is like, there's no doubt about it. He has some lines from, well, he was trying to be voted back in during this last election that, I mean, if it were about any other people group ever, like maybe outside of Nazis, <laughs> it would be considered total discrimination. And this is talking to 20% of Canadians at this point. He's saying, how long should we tolerate these people? He's saying that these people are putting our children at risk. Like he's saying these extremely untrue and inflammatory things that just built the ire of 80% of the Canadian population towards the other 20%. Like it was really two-tiered and the, this 20% were evil. They were bad. They needed to be shunned. It's absolutely disgusting. And under this, this weird pretense of like bubble wrapping grown people that they can't make their own decisions and they can't, you know, help thy neighbor um, is, is, it's a complete fallacy because really, uh, just back on gun control in, in Switzerland, they have about 2 million privately owned guns. That was 2016. They got about a 8 million population that has grown dramatically. They're one of the biggest gun owners in the world. And Switzerland is one of the safest places in the world, right? That's possibly mm. why Davos is there. There's a lot of reasons for Switzerland, <laughs> but, um, it's, it's just a fallacy that this is to, to help protect Canadians. It, it's just, it doesn't, doesn't compute with me. Um, same with well, the last remember, two years. You, I like looking at what you're doing on Telegram right now, Diogo, because you're, you're speaking to something that is underrepresented right now. And that is um, masculinity. It's at least to the degree of self-autonomy, like, like, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and getting out there and dealing with shit, which is uh, not a big movement right now in the last, however long, eight to 10 years, it's been more and more pampering and, and convenience and other people will take care of me for me kind of uh, mentality where it becomes very easy to just fear monger. These people be like, don't worry, big daddy government will take care of you because of the scary thing. Like just put whatever shadow on the wall to make a thing scary. And there's, just, there's that classic saying, a man who gives up freedom for safety deserves neither. Yes. That's a fantastic saying. And I, I really feel like I appreciate, um, appreciate what you're saying. Um, and I really do feel that we, we're at the stage where we do need to uh, strap ourselves up and just pull ourselves up and grab the person next to us and, and just 
move forward with this thing. Other, otherwise, I see, I do see us getting rolled over. Like in Australia, we've been able to push it back a little. We, um, mm-hmm. we definitely did have a slippery slope uh, there, especially in Melbourne and Sydney. Did you guys see the same censorship that we saw over here? Over here, uh, like my YouTube was shut down, my my Facebook uh, got banned. Um, did you see that over there? Did you start social oh, yeah. disorder during the pandemic? Yeah, um, I I had a previous podcast that I rebranded into social disorder. It was just a jujitsu podcast called the Because Jitsu Podcast that I was doing kind of on and off for about a year that I had started sort of in the middle of my my lockdown where I'm just sitting in an empty gym and I, I, I'm not talking to people because people aren't allowed to talk to people at this point. Like literally, it, yeah. it there were fines in place if you were in contact with another household. So I, I would just drive myself to this empty building and you know work on my computer and do whatever I could. But I was getting like really bored and honestly quite lonely. I was just not getting human contact. And I was, I started this podcast up the because jitsu podcast originally just to talk to people again, because I mean, yeah. you train jujitsu, you know what it's like going yeah. to the matches. There's a social element to it that you don't know how much you need until it's missing. 100%. And I didn't have that anymore. I didn't have my core group of people that I was talking to daily um, for a long time, for months at a time. And it was almost like a, an inmate situation where I just needed somebody to talk to. And so I decided I'd do it for myself. I'll just start this podcast and bring on some guests from other parts of the world that are, you know, quarantining wherever they are and do this. It's kind of like a digital pen pal thing at this point where it's like, how's your incarceration? How's your incarceration? <laughs> kind of thing. And uh, that's what sort of bred that. But it got to the point because of all of the buildup of the total bullshit in Canada for the last, I mean, it really became pregnant in last summer, uh, about, I don't know, June or July of last year. My, my business failed at the end of May. So in June we went mobile, we were in the trailer Mm -hmm. and we're looking at getting out of the country because first of all, it's pretty hostile towards us as unvaccinated people. It really is mm-hmm. like we were being discriminated against at that point by not being allowed to go to restaurants, not being allowed to go to hockey games, theaters, anything that was a, a social venue. Uh, we were considered plague rats at that point. Everybody else could because they had a vaccine passport. They were proven to be clean. We were the unclean. And so like me, my children, we didn't go to any restaurants, like even fast food places. We weren't allowed, you know, um, it, it was very, obvious that we were the other and unwanted and undesirable. So we wanted to get out of this country for that reason, because we knew like looking down south, the U.S. isn't acting like this. So let's go there. And on top of that, living in a trailer, especially up in Canada, you can't really winter in a trailer. It gets minus 40 during the winter up here. So like, but you can't do it. So for those two reasons, we needed to get across the border, which was very difficult because the border was closed and we weren't allowed to you know, drive across. So how do we get our house across? There was a a whole lot. I won't get into the details because it's it's like a 45 minute detour, but Mm -hmm. we finally got across after months of planning and about $8,000 worth of preparation to get my family down across the border. Um, And to get back to the podcast, we were down in the U.S. during the, uh, during the freedom protest up here, the trucker protest that happened in Ottawa. I know that made global news. Yeah. Um, and it, it was the first time in the entire pandemic where 
I felt like we had a chance to have a voice. Like we have not had a chance to even have a voice at that point because any voices that go out get censored immediately. Mm-hmm. And not even necessarily by the institutions, by like Facebook or or whatever, um, although they do, a lot of times it was like your own friends and family would just disown you if they knew sure. that you supported anything to mm-hmm. do with, you know, counter narrative. And so like everybody was self-censoring at the same time. And we finally had this chance to have a voice, you know, and I, I started from the U.S. in about the middle of February. February 13th was the first episode that I did to rebrand the podcast. And it was it was titled The Elephant in the Room, where I just went off for like an hour and a half on a solo podcast talking about all the things I'm not allowed to talk about. And it was such a cathartic release for me of all of this this boiling pent-up frustration that I had experienced as really an innocent citizen. I had done nothing criminally wrong, but but treated like an absolute pariah by not only my government, but most of society. Mm. They were kind of just going along with it and cool about it. And uh, at that point, I decided, I made a pregnant decision at that point to speak my mind and to hell with the consequences. Like I had lost friends. I have sort of disenfranchised family over this, like immediate family. Uh, it, It was painful and it was difficult, but it was necessary. And now it's been three and a half months and I've basically doubled the amount of downloads that I've had for the previous year on just doing a jujitsu podcast, because this is the stuff that matters. And that matters to me, you know, like I, I don't do this for an income. In fact, I, I pay into this. I lose money on doing this, but it's something that I enjoy and I feel like a real calling to do a passion for. And in the past, when I've felt a passion to do something and followed it, it's always really worked out for me. So for that reason, I think that this is the path, whether or not it's safe for me to do so. And I'm still in Canada and there are reasons why it's not a good idea to do what I'm doing. I'm for sure. My name is for sure on some lists in the government. I fucking guarantee you because I know that they exist. I know the people that I've talked to and I I know that they're on the list. So it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's kind of shit or get off the pot. It's like, do you believe what you believe? Mm. And if you do, you have to be real about it. Otherwise, you might as well not. You might as well not believe it. Because if you believed it, you'd be willing to stand up for what it means. And and in this case, it's literally human freedom in what's supposed to be a free democratic society. Fucking oath. And I take my hats off to you for, for doing so as well. Um, you, you know, you could, a lot of people, especially people that haven't done anything wrong um, uh, criminally at all, um, that have chosen to, you know, see what it is that is happening and stand up for their beliefs. Uh, it's, yeah, my hat's off to you. And during that, uh, the truckers, it was global news. Uh, the sentiment on the ground, because from us, it seems like the whole of Canada was was behind the truckers, as well as the whole the whole of the world. Um, I believe the U.S. truckers were on their way to Washington. I'm not too sure what actually ended up happening there, but Canada held their ground for a long time until what happened. Yeah. So 
I'm glad that from afar, and I saw this from the States while I was down there watching it too, from afar, from other countries, it was very obvious what was happening was a grassroots, um, real patriot movement for the the sovereignty over our own physical decisions within you know uh, what's supposed to be a free country and it had boiled over to the point that this grassroots movement became this what trudeau again would call a fringe minority that rolled into ottawa in the tens of thousands and all the way across Canada, by the way, which is not a small country, it's it's wider than the contiguous uh, United States, as well as Australia, actually, is, is a very, very large country laterally. Yeah. And they rolled all the way from BC, which is the West Coast, all the way to Ottawa, which is most of the way. And, man, it's... It's obvious from outside of Canada what was going on, but to speak to the mass psychosis inside of Canada, it was labeled across the board as a terrorist, racist, misogynist, white supremacist movement of evil people. And I'm not understating that. People in my own family were like, you can't support that. You don't know what that is. These are terrorists. And I'm looking at people with like multiracial families bouncing in bouncy castles, having the great old time singing the national anthem in front of the parliament building. Like, I, I don't see the terrorists. I don't see the racists. And uh, what's great is that as much as the internal propaganda machines, the state-run media of Canada was labeling it as best they could as all of these slurs that there's these things called live casts that people can do through Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, TikTok, whatever, where they just went live in the thousands every day to show you what it's actually like. And so you'd get these two completely dichotomic uh, experiences, one coming through the mainstream media and one coming through the grassroots media. And you're like, okay, well, somebody's wrong here. And it seems mm. to be the people talking about it that aren't there are probably not as truthful as the people who are actually there and showing you with your own eyes what's going on. Exactly. So it, it was interesting to see how obvious and how stark it was that the government is against this type of thing. It was it was such an obvious propaganda play to anybody paying attention. So what happened, to speak to your question, it was 21 days, three full weeks of peaceful protest where the government tried everything they possibly could in sneaky ways to try to get these people to stop without instituting violence because they're peaceful. There was no reason they were doing perfectly lawful. Nothing they were doing was illegal. And they they tried to cast it as an illegal thing. This illegal blockade, they kept saying, it's like, this is not a blockade. Nobody's being blocked. The major routes are open and that's on purpose. They're doing everything. They have lawyers. They had a handful of lawyers go with them that drafted up this thing that they wanted to, to present to the prime minister. They, they had this whole plan that it was very public that once they got to Ottawa, they were going to meet with the prime minister and present them this legal terms that basically said, lift all the mandates. We, the people say, lift all the mandates. And in those 21 days, not even one day did Justin Trudeau come out to to treat with any of them. Not a single representative was was treated with. And in fact, he he actually hid for the first like week. He flew away to different countries yeah, right. and said that, oh, I've got COVID. I can't be there. And said, like, you know, I came in contact with these people, so I have to quarantine. I'm like, you are hiding right now. And he did that for the entirety of the protest. And when I say like the government was doing weaselly little things to try to shut them down, I mean like they were taking away their fuel. And this is in the middle of the winter where it's like 
negative 20 or worse every night. And people are tented out in this area because they can't get a room because the government literally rented out every single possible hotel room within range of the parliament with taxpayer dollars so that these people had nowhere to stay. And so they took their fuel from them that was running generators for heat in their tents and their cars overnight. And then they took firewood from them. And these are families out there. This, these aren't like hardened truckers, all of them. In fact, most of them were like just regular ass Canadians going down to support people. Mm. And they tried to make it so difficult to be there. But these people, like you, you painted them into a corner and you really saw what Canadian resolve was. And while all that was happening, there was not only was there no violence at all, and it was trying to be incited. There's reports of pallets of bricks that mysteriously showed up on corners expecting there to be a riot that happened. Never happened. People reported the bricks and got them removed. And they, mm. they sh shoveled all the snow on all the sidewalks. It had never been so clean down there. They were feeding the homeless. They, there were people bringing food down there to the point that there was too much. They didn't know what to do with it. And any businesses that opened up, which again was a against the regulations at the time, they never had done such good business in their life. And they, they had nothing but good things to say to these people that basically saved their business while they were starving um, with so much like joy and free um, like capitalism where people are, are paying extra and paying for other people. It was, it was like a party and, and like a joyful one. It was, this was like a Canada Day celebration for 21 days straight. This is what they're trying to flag as unacceptable and a fringe minority. It's like, this is the most Canadian thing we've ever seen. And so to finally get down to it after 21 days and they cannot convince these people to go, they will not treat with them. They won't negotiate. They won't step out and even talk to one single representative. They go ahead. Um, and this is in the courts right now to figure out who actually made the call. So far, we know it wasn't the RCMP, which is our, uh, state police. It uh, wasn't the local police, the Ottawa police. They've been, they've renounced that they had anything to do with the implementation of what was something called the Emergencies Act, which is a rebranding of something called the War Measures Act, which was originally created for the First World War. And wow. before this time had only been instituted three times previously, once for the First World War, once for the Second World War, and then once for an actual terrorist attack in the 70s called the October Crisis during, coincidentally, Pierre Trudeau's reign, where there was a, uh, a group of terrorist Quebec separationists called the FLQ that abducted a bunch of foreign dignitaries. They, um, they uh, held some ransom. They murdered other ones. So this was an actual terrorist attack where even the, the people in the, the media of the time, when Pierre Trudeau instituted the, the Emergencies Act for that, said that it was too much, that this, this is too much power. Because what happens when they institute this act? They're expecting that the country is at war which immediately gives the government total over, overreach over all civil liberties. Everybody in the country's civil liberties are put on pause while this thing is being initiated because you can draft people to war, you can do whatever you want, you can take from industries without paying them as long as you win the war, right? That's what it's mm. for. And now, as far as I know, it hasn't been proven yet and he won't admit it, but Trudeau was the one that, that called this. Because, I mean, he was the one that had to announce it, and he was the one that announced when it when it was uh, ended. But the way that it's written is he basically gets a free seven days of use of this thing before it gets voted on by the parliament whether or not to institute it. 
because it's considered like wow. if it's if it's this much of an emergency, you don't have time to go through parliament, which is, you know, a lot of bureaucracy and red tape. We need to do this now. That's what it was built to do. This is like a, an emergency time measure. And so he got a full week of being able to go out with riot cops and literally abuse people off the property. There's uh, video and reports of people being like muzzle struck in the back of the head with live rifles. There's people being like their windows being smashed and dragged out of their RVs and their trucks. There's uh, There was a veteran that was boot stomped by three guards. Like it's, it's all on tape. It, it's, you can find all of the abuses that like, they did what they had to do when it came to, okay, we're not allowed to use violence because you're not using violence, but now we can use violence. So we're going to go in there and be as violent as we need to be to move these peaceful protesters off. And I will speak to one thing too about this is those peaceful protesters stuck to their fucking guns. And by that, I mean, they didn't do anything. They, they were not physically aggressive while this was happening, which was very important because then the violence would escalate, right? Then they could yeah. do even crazier things. If it turned into a riot, which is what they were expecting, it's what they were ready for. And it's the way that they went down uh, against these protesters. So long story short, six days into this free week that, Tr that Trudeau gets, and it's coming up on the Senate committee who is literally at the time that he says he's going to stop it, they were in uh, a Senate committee meeting discussing whether or not they should vote this thing in because it's happening right away. This is six days into it and it's looking really bad for Trudeau. Like they're, they're lambasting him as a total tyrant for, for this. So it's clearly they're not going to push this thing through. And he says, oh, we did what we need to do, do guys. It's over now. We can, we can stop this. Now, what you didn't hear when he said that was people knew right away that, oh, well, I mean, the Senate wasn't going to pass it. He got as much as he could get out of it. But what we found out later is that part of the total governmental oversight that he got, some of the superpowers that he was able to abuse people's civil liberties with, was their financial autonomy. And he started freezing people's bank accounts that had anything to do with the protests whatsoever, to the degree that there were... There were crowdfunding pages like GoFundMe, like GiveSendGo, who made, they had massive campaigns put together for this freedom movement That's up true. to an over $10 million worth of crowdfund to go towards supporting these truckers while they, they were out of work until they could get this protest done. And anybody, I, I shouldn't say anybody, many people who gave to this, um, they had their bank accounts frozen as if it was terrorist activity, as if this was a Saudi prince that was giving money for plane bombers, you know? <sighs> and there were people, like, there's a, a classic story out of BC of a single mother um, who worked two jobs that gave $50 to this thing that had her bank accounts frozen. She wasn't allowed Jeez. to get groceries anymore for her kids because she gave $50 to a political fund that, that was totally legal. You know, this isn't a... a uh, a terrorist organization. She's not supporting the Ku Klux Klan. You know, she's like, yeah, I'll give what I can. I'm going to give my alms, you know, to the tithe. And she got her shit frozen. Now, Disgusting. that backfired in a big way on Trudeau because once people started seeing that bank accounts were being uh, frozen willy-nilly like that, there was a run on the banks. And what that term means is the major banks in Canada, I think there's five major banks in Canada, Mm. They have a condition of being able to lend up to 7x their liquidity. So what that means is 
all the money that's put into their banking system through all the people who put into it, businesses, corporations, single owners, private savings accounts, all of it, that's their liquidity, how much actual money is in their system. And they are allowed to lend up to 7x that into loans and mortgages and the like. Now, once people around the world, by the way, like not just Canadians, but major corporations that held money in Canada saw that they were freezing shit, they all started withdrawing their money and not some of it, all of it. They withdrew tons, millions. I mean, I, don't, I haven't seen the books, but I've heard rumors of billions of dollars being taken out of the major financial corporations or sorry, uh, institutions of Canada to the degree that the bankers came to Trudeau and said, if you don't stop this, our entire economy is going to crash because all of the mortgages and the loans are going to default because we can't lend for them anymore. And so that, I mean, ironically, it always comes back to the money, right? It's it, the people don't matter. Their freedoms don't matter. Always. But if the money gets hurt, we got to stop this shit. It always does. And it's, it's a, it's a sad, sad part of society where, where it, it comes to that. That's, that's a lot of that I had no idea about. And that's incredible. And if it turns out that there is there was no one um, that ordered this and Trudeau, Trudeau just did it himself. Because it only lasted six days, nothing will happen to him. Is that right? I don't see I don't see a universe where he has any sort of um, negative repercussion from this whatsoever. That's disgusting. Yeah, I I don't think it would be as easy for him to do again in the future. But he, I mean, he played his card and that was kind of his trump card. You know, I'm sure he didn't mm. want to have to play that one, but he did what he did. And I, sh I should say a lot of people look at this as the trucker, the convoy, the, the protest was a failure. The freedom protest, it failed. It got booted off. It wasn't heard. Nothing happened. And I think that that is a short-sighted view of what happened. I agree. What happened was the people absolutely got hurt, if not by their government, who clearly were ignoring them, by the rest of the world. And what they did is they made a tyrant be a tyrant. They, against his better judgment, he did something completely tyrannical, considering that he's supposed to be the left party that's supposed to be like for the, like the empathetic social justice. I mean, this is his whole stick, right? Is being the guy, the people's people, right? He really wants to like help the little guy out. And he literally called the SWAT on the little people. The people in his own words are the fringe minority. I'm sorry, that you said you just beat up the minorities? Interesting, Justin, because any other minority that you would be decrying that. And other people in other nations did and called them horrible, terrible things during the whole thing, including like actual terrible countries like Venezuela. <laughs> the leader of Venezuela is like, yeah, nice job, Trudeau. Now we know you're a tyrant. Yeah, he'd, he'd either be stomping on them or dressing up the, like them. I'm not too sure. One of the <laughs> two. <laughs> and uh, Drew, before, before I let you go, I know it's getting late there. Um, if you want to touch on where uh, everyone can find you and also your latest podcast, which has been with uh, Peter McCullum. Uh, he's, mm -hmm. uh, how was that? Um, and... Yeah, let us know a little bit about it without diving in too much so the listeners can go and uh, listen to the full episode. 
Yeah, for sure. It actually went a lot even better than I had hoped. To be honest, I've been amazing. He was on my get list of like my my top three, top five people that I want to get on the podcast since I started rebranding towards the Social Disorder Podcast. So, firstly, guys, if you want to follow and check out my work, the easiest way is just look up Social Disorder Podcast on any of your podcasting platforms. It's just audio. There's no video, so don't worry about YouTube because I mean, what's the point, in my opinion, of building a YouTube that's going to get taken down anyways? Mm. But um, True. The Peter McCullough podcast, which just got released a couple days ago, actually today, I think it just got released today. I recorded it a couple days ago. Um, it was more than I expected because even though it wasn't as long as I wanted, because he's got a lot of speaking agreements and we were on a clock, we had like 50 minutes to talk. Yeah. He had brought on a co-author of a book that he had just recently released. And so this is actually part of a book tour for um, his book that's called um, The Courage to Stand Up to COVID-19. And right. his co-author, it, it comes from a very interesting background. He is a uh, true crimes novelist. So he's looked at crimes in the past and has written like the uh, the narrative version of the whole story this is he's been featured uh for like behind the scenes on a e biography on discovery canada on a bunch of different like uh, history network kind of uh, uh tv publications and he comes they come at it this whole pandemic story from peter mccullough's own uh, expertise as obviously the most cited cardiologist of all time. He's uh, written uh, over a thousand peer-reviewed articles. He's been cited in over 600. And uh, I mean, his credentials go on like a laundry list. I rattled them off at the beginning of the podcast for an intro. And it's just like, I'm running out of breath trying to say all the things that he's good at. Um, he knows what he's talking about and he's made it his own particular uh, mission to get the word out about what he knows and what he's seen about COVID-19, about the symptoms, about the syndromes, about the vaccines, the whole thing. But also this book is written in a narrative form that reads like a true crimes novel to try to unravel the mystery of this crime. So it's a really cool book. I just ordered it on Amazon. Um, and it, it, that is the style of the podcast too. I kind of go back and forth between uh, the author, John Leake, and uh, the specialist being... Dr. Peter McCullough. And so I really suggest uh, that you guys go check that out. It's only about a 50 minute listen. And yeah, I've, I'm excited for that one that it got out, but also like if you've listened this far in the podcast, you kind of get a feel for the way that I kind of go off on topics. And I've, I, to speak to the passion of, of this type of thing that I'm doing, this project, the social disorder podcast, I'm putting out between four to six episodes a week. So it is, I'm really putting my whole effort behind this. And I think if you enjoy this type of discussion, it is hopefully going to be one of those podcasts in the future that, that picks up that type of audience and we can all sort of grow this thing. Well, it's, you can get on early while the train is building is what I'm saying. And do get on a hundred percent. And I, yeah, uh, as a, as I said, Drew, definitely back your podcast. All listeners do go listen. Um, and especially this, uh, latest episode and with the guests that you're getting on, it's yeah, the trajectory of it, it's, it's only going up and you can clearly see that you're, you're definitely passionate about, um, helping people in general and this particular topic. Um, and yeah, all the best for future. I'm sure we'll have you on again. I don't want to keep you too long. I know it's getting late over there, but 
uh, as always, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and thank you for uh, coming on and giving us a, a little bit of an insight of uh, Canada and what's going on on the ground. I do appreciate it. Thanks, Drew. Yeah, anytime, Diogo. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.